want to thank you for allowing us to be here today, whether we're in person or online. We ask that your spirit fill us. We praise you for all that you've done and will continue to do in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written by over 40 authors over a period of several hundred years. It's divided into what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament, which essentially means a part before Jesus and the part that comes at his birth and after Jesus. The first five books of the Old Testament from Genesis to Deuteronomy deal with the beginnings, the very beginning of everything in Genesis to the beginning of the people of Israel. Then come the history books, 12 books from Joshua to Esther that detail the life of the people of Israel and what became known as the Promised Land. Those are followed by five wisdom books that contain practical advice for common sense living from Job to Proverbs to the Song of Solomon. Then there are 17 prophetic books, beginning with Isaiah and going all the way to the end of the Old Testament. And by prophetic books, I mean that a prophet was someone who brought the word of God to the people of that day, not someone who predicted or foretold the future, though there's a little bit of that in those books as well. 39 books in the Old Testament, followed by the New Testament with 27 books that came at Jesus' birth and following. The New Testament starts off with four biographies, or Gospels. Gospel is just a word that simply means good news. It's the good news about Jesus, and they're titled after the authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, followed by 22 letters, beginning with Acts and going to the book of Jude. Now, we, we call them books, but most of the New Testament is made up of letters written to either individuals or churches. So that's 65 of the 66 books of the Bible, probably the quickest history of the Bible you've ever heard, which means there's only one book left. At the very end of the Bible, in a category all to itself, and today, we start a series where we are going to walk verse by verse through that book, the book of Revelation. You see, the church I was raised in, we ignored the book of Revelation. I don't think I ever heard a sermon on the book of Revelation in the church I was raised in. So when I became an Adventist, which my math serves me correctly, the anniversary of my baptism is tomorrow. When I became an Adventist, I started digging deep into that book, but I never really did so until a young adult Sabbath school class I was teaching said, let's study the book of Revelation. I had never really dug that deep into it, so I did what any good person would do. I grabbed every commentary I had, even a couple that I borrowed, and every version of the Bible I had, and I laid them all out on the table, and I started 
digging deep, trying to see what does this book really say? And I'll tell you that young adult Sabbath school class, it took us about two and a half years to get through the book of Revelation. And don't worry, this is not going to be a two and a half year long sermon series. Eight weeks, I condensed it down. But what I did, what I, each week I would have notes from, that comp, from what I was studying. And it wasn't until just recently when I was starting to work on this series that I took each of those weeks and I combined them into what I would call the Matt commentary on the book of Revelation. Now, most of it, if you looked at it, you'd be like, I have no idea what he's talking about. And if honest, I'm, some of the verses I looked at, I was like, I don't really know what I was talking about there either. But when I combined them, over 75 pages of commentaries that I condensed, and, and this is largely what I'm going to share with you. Now, 75 pages into eight weeks. Might preach a little bit longer than I have in the past. We'll see. It depends on how many stories I tell. But the book of Revelation is deep. It's partially hard to understand. That's probably why I never heard of it when I was a child. But the title in the original Greek language is Apocalypse, a word that's now filled with the idea of end times and cataclysmic events. That's because the Apocalypse talks about end times and cataclysmic events. But the word itself really just means unveiling, vision, Revelation, disclosure, which is why in English we refer to the book as the book of Revelation. And it's unlike any of the other New Testament books. It truly stands alone. It's not a gospel or a biography of Jesus, though Jesus is featured prominently in the book. In fact, there are more words directly from Jesus in the book of Revelation than anywhere else outside of the four Gospels. It's not one of the letters written, it's not one of those letters written to a church, but there are seven letters to seven churches within its writing. See, what the book of Revelation is, more than anything else, is a writing down of a series of visions that a man named John was given from God. The apocalypse is John's fifth installment and final contribution to the Bible. He wrote the biography of his own name, John. He also wrote the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. See, John was believed to be the first cousin of Jesus, his mother, the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. He also was one of the 12 apostles, disciples, men called by Jesus to follow him and who Jesus invested in for his entire ministry here on earth, who then <clears throat> formed the leadership of that early church and were used to write much of the New Testament. John was called the man Jesus loved, not just because he was family, but because he was the closest the, the most intimate friend that Jesus had while he was on this earth. He was the only one of Jesus' followers who didn't flee after Jesus was arrested and crucified. It was John alone 
at the foot of the cross to bring comfort to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, and of course, to Jesus himself. And from the cross, Jesus asked John to care for his mother after his death. Revelation is just what the title suggests. It's a record of the revelation that John experienced and saw and heard in those visions. So it's a different kind of book. The language is different. The feel is different. It's full of imagery and symbolism as John tries to describe what he saw and heard. Things that were beyond the descriptive capability of the human language. Things that he didn't fully understand. He was just trying to be faithful in recording what he saw. Much of it a vision of the future. Take a moment and think. Think about a first century man being given of events unfolding at the end of time. Can you imagine how difficult it would be for him to see and, and picture even things from our day and to find the right words to describe it. How would someone in the first century describe an airplane or a rocket or a car? It'd be pretty impossible. Think of anyone given a glimpse of heaven trying to describe it. Our language just won't do it justice. And yet, through the inspiration and the work of the Holy Spirit, we find the descriptions that John uses uniquely gripping and engaging and illuminating. For example, instead of saying that something is evil, John describes it as a prostitute drunk with the blood of the saints. The Antichrist is referred to as a beast. To add to that challenge, the vision of the future is also multi-layered, multi-dimensional. You see, the first layer or dimension often speaks of the actual time to which it was being written, to the actual days of John's life, which means that not everything in Revelation is prophetic. And sometimes mistakes are made by forgetting that and assuming that everything you read is somehow set in the future. But then there's a second layer that can come into play, and the immediate historical nature of the writing can switch to the immediate future that's to come. But even then, it's the future of John's generation not the future as it relates to the end of time. And then a third dynamic. The text can then switch and speak to the end of time itself, the events of the last days, events just before, during, and right after the second coming of Jesus at the end of time. So there are often three ways to take what you read in the book of Revelation. The present the short-term future, and the long-term future. Now, there are technical terms for these different views. The, the, you have the preterist view, which is reading it in light of the first-century setting. In other words, things that have already happened. 
You have the historicist view, which is reading it in light from John's time to the end of that era, things that are still happening. And you have a futurist view, which is reading it as speaking to the end of time, things that have not yet happened. In fact, there's even a fourth view, the idealist view, who, who would argue that they are purely symbolic and that they won't happen at all. See, sometimes when you read the book of Revelation and you try to interpret what it's saying, you have to read it through all of those lenses because sometimes all of those understandings come into play. So with all of that background in mind, let's go ahead and jump into the book of Revelation. Here is how John starts. The revelation, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is how his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says. For the time is near. Now that's a pretty plain way to start out. John doesn't waste any time here. This is what Jesus himself revealed to me, is what he's essentially saying, both directly and through his angels. Things that are about to happen. It contains prophecy, which doesn't simply mean things predicted for the future, but prophecy in the sense of a prophetic word, which includes challenges and admonitions. A prophecy includes not only the foretelling of what is going to happen in the future, but the proclamation of any word from God. And he says that for all who read it, all who take it in, who absorb what it has to say for their lives, there is a unique blessing because it holds a unique message. And wh why does it matter so much? Because of those last four words of John's opening. The time is near. Which raises a question, doesn't it? the one looming over the entire book. Are we living in the end times? Now, there are two answers to that question. The first is, yes, of course we're living in the end times. Technically speaking, we've been living in the end times since Jesus' death, life, death, and resurrection. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the end times began. But there's a second way to answer that question, and this one's a bit trickier. How close are we during these end times to the very end? How close are we? Even the first followers of Jesus had that on their minds. They asked Jesus, how would they know? And he told them with a great deal of specificity. Here's what he had told them to look for in the book of Matthew. He said, many will come in my name, claiming I 
am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars. But don't panic. Yes, these things must take place. But the end won't imme follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere. And the love of many will grow cold. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. See, when you analyze that text, there are at least eight signs that Jesus tells us to look for. First, there will be false prophets and people who claim to be Christ or some type of a Messiah leader. Second, there will be wars and threats of war. Third, there will be an increase in the number of natural disasters. Kind of appropriate for that one this weekend. Floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts, earthquakes. Number four, Christians will be persecuted for their faith. They will be ridiculed. They'll be discriminated against. Number five, a lot of people will turn away from their faith. They will renounce Jesus and say that they no longer believe in him. Number six, there will be internal division and discord among Christians. Christian will turn on each other. Number seven, immorality, insensitivity toward immorality will reign throughout the land. And the final sign is that before it all ends, the good news of Jesus will be proclaimed to everyone in the world. So are we in the end time? As we speak, the online world is full of false teachers. We're teetering on the brink of World War III between Russia and Ukraine. Global warming is spiking at, at severe weather events. Christians are being persecuted all around the world, particularly in places like China and India, but even here in the United States. Christians and their values and their beliefs are often mocked and ridiculed. Former self-professed Christians are fueling the rise of the nuns turning away from Jesus. The last two years, and all things COVID have divided Christians as never before, and in ways previously thought unthinkable. What doctrinal wars and, and worship wars couldn't do, masks and vaccines and QAnon has done. See, for the first time, the internet makes the global communication of any message possible, including the message of Jesus. 
think that checks all of them. In truth, we don't know the exact time, only what the world will look like and feel like when the end is near. And the description given in Matthew sure does look and feel a lot like right now. But let's keep reading that John continues and says, This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. John says he's writing this to seven churches in the province of Asia. Those seven churches were located in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, not the one in Pennsylvania, and Laodicea. See, these seven cities form something of a circular route that one would take if you were journeying through that area. And while there are some specific messages in the Revelation for those particular churches, it, it wouldn't have been meant to be limited just to that church, but also being symbolic and being representative. It was, it was designed for the entire Christian church then, and as a re revelation of things to come for all churches that would come after them, even ours. But getting it out to those seven churches was like dropping it on the seven major feeds on the day to ensure dissemination throughout the world. John continues and says, Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. The sevenfold reference to the Holy Spirit could mean one of a couple different things. The first is that it's a reference to the distinctive ministry of the Holy Spirit to each of these seven churches. A second possibility, though, could be the set that just using that number seven as symbolic, indicating, because the number seven indicates perfection and completeness, which is how it's often used throughout the Bible and extensively in the book of Revelation. In fact, in the book of Revelation, the number seven shows up more than 50 times. Seven Beatitudes, seven golden lampstands, seven stars, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven signs, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven golden bowls, seven hills, seven kings, and seven letters to seven churches. The number seven is still used that way in our day. John then focuses on the second member of the Trinity, Jesus as he wraps up this opening introduction to his word, when he says, All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look. He comes with the clouds of heaven, and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God, 
I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. See, beyond the sheer praise that John wants to give to Jesus, he also wants to show what Jesus has done for him, his death, his resurrection, along with a foretaste of what it will be like when Jesus comes again. There are a couple little things here to take note of. First, that Jesus has made those of us who have a relationship with him to be a kingdom of priests. On, on Mount Sinai, God promised the Israelites that they would be for him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here, that's being said of the Christian church in this day to us. We are a kingdom of priests. And second, that when Jesus returns, not everyone will be happy. In fact, throughout the book of Revelation, we will see that the only people who ever mourn are those who have rejected Jesus. And third, the reference to God as the Alpha and the Omega is a reference to the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Here, what it's showing us is that we have an eternal God. But let's keep going, beginning in verse 9. It says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. Let me give you quick background here. This was a time of rising persecution for the Christians. Rome had started to enforce the idea of emperor worship which caused Christians to be seen as political subversives. Eleven of the twelve disciples died a martyr's death for the sake of the, and the cause of Jesus. John was the only exception. But it wasn't because he denied anything about Jesus. He made the same confession. But for whatever reason, instead of being killed, he was punished by being exiled to the island of Patmos, a small outpost in the Aegean Sea that was a site of a Roman penal colony. It's a small, rocky island, about four miles by eight miles in size. It was Alcatraz before Alcatraz was Alcatraz. It was from there that these visions came, and he wrote about the book of Revelation. Verse 10 says, it was the Lord's day. What's that mean? Here's the first bit of controversy. See, if you ask someone who goes to church on Sunday, they'll tell you the Lord's day is Sunday. If you ask an Adventist, even most of our commentaries, they will say that means Sabbath. But what does Matt's version of a commentary say? I say neither. You see, John is writing this 
John had a Greek word for Sunday. John had a Greek word for Saturday. He didn't use either of those words. In fact, the word used here translated Lord's Day. This is the only time in the entire Bible that word is used. So what does it mean? Now, I, I can't guarantee you this because it is just my interpretation, but I think John is trying to get a point across that it, he's looking at an end-time vision. It's, the, it's a, the day of the Lord, not a particular day of the week. Now, in saying that, I know that I'm going against what most Adventists teach. But if John wanted this to be the Sabbath, he could have used the word for Sabbath. He next says, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. A reference to a unique spiritual state, a kind of spiritual exaltation, not a dream, but caught up in a visionary experience. Something pretty rare. In fact, there are only two other references in the New Testament to anything like this. The first happened with Peter. When he went up to the roof to pray and he fell into a spiritual trance, a state of mind produced by God for divine communication. And it was at that point that he was given a vision. In fact, we read about that in the book of Acts where it says the next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. And while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill him and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared. I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. What's that vision mean? A lot of people would tell you that it means that you can eat whatever you want to eat. But that's not what the vision was all about. You have to look and see what was going on at the time. It's not about food. The vision came early on in the life of the Christian church. And it was given to ensure that it was understood by their leaders that the message of Jesus and the Christian faith was to move beyond just Jewish circles and into the wider Gentile world. Something similar also happened to the uh, Apostle Paul. We find that in 2 Corinthians, where he says, I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. So when we get to John, 
It's only the third time that we know of, of anyone having this kind of experience. But in John's case, it was an extensive series of visions, and he was not told to keep it to himself. He was told, you need to tell everyone what I'm revealing to you. So let's keep reading, and here is the first actual vision in the book of Revelation. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see, and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet, like polished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand. And a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Let's stop there for a second. John is having his first vision, and in it, Jesus comes to him. Beyond being blown away by, by his appearance, John is grasping. He's grasping for language to be able to describe Jesus. Eyes like flames of fire. A way of trying to describe how penetrating and revealing they seem to be. Feet like polished bronze, akin to metal that's gone through a purifying fire. A voice that thundered like ocean waves, which was a description Old Testament prophet Ezekiel used about the voice of God as well. His head, his hair, blinding white, symbolic of wisdom and the dignity of age. There were three very specific images that stand out in that description. That he stood amidst seven golden lampstands. That he held seven stars in his right hand and had a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This is kind of the first taste we get of something weird in the book of Revelation. It won't be the last time. We, we, always, we don't always know what these weird things mean, but this time, starting out, we do. Jesus actually is going to fill in the blanks for both John and, and us uh, what, what, the, what some of those mean. But I can fill in what it means about the sword part, which seems odd, doesn't it? A sharp two-edged sword coming out of someone's mouth. Imagine, imagine John trying to picture that. But see, throughout the Bible, the sword is a symbol and a representation of judgment. If someone were to come bearing the sword, they were coming to bear judgment. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read this, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, 
cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. So in this vision, Jesus presents himself as one who comes bringing and speaking the sword, the sword of judgment. But then as we keep reading, we see this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, they are the seven churches. Let me unpack that for a second. First, Jesus assured John that he had no reason to be afraid. For those in Christ, the word is, you don't have to be afraid. And second, as a resurrected Jesus, he holds the keys to death and the grave. John is told to write down everything he sees. And then finally, Jesus explains at, at least the first installment of these weird things in Revelation. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. Which means he's getting ready to send out an incredibly important message of judgment related to those seven churches. And by the way, we're going to be hearing a lot about angels in Revelation and hearing a lot from them as well. In fact, angels are referred to 67 times in the book of Revelation alone. There you have the first chapter in the book of Revelation. Next week, we're going to look at what is in each of those seven letters to the seven churches. A section of Revelation that if you have a red-letter Bible, meaning a Bible that highlights the words of Jesus in red, it's all red. In fact, it's the longest stretch of the words of Jesus in the entire Bible. It's, it is the only record of what Jesus says to us here on planet Earth from heaven as he ascended Lord. And he had a lot to say. It's more relevant to and for our lives than ever at this very time as we look and it seems so close to the end of time. Because it wasn't just seven letters to seven random churches, but there were letters to us today. Well, we went through a lot of stuff pretty quick today, but that's the way the series is going to be. It's gonna, we're going to move fast because otherwise it'd be two and a half years and nobody wants that. But it's also the way the book of Revelation has been written. 
quickly, jumping from topic to topic, sometimes through the current day, sometimes to the future, sometimes to the end of time. And it's probably one of the most exciting books I've ever read. And I'm glad that I eventually dug into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the message you've given us in Revelation. Thank you that you, that you encourage us to read it, that you told John to write down everything that he saw. Thank you that we have that ability to read and to study and to understand what must happen before you come again. Help us to be ready when you do. In Jesus' name, amen.